Thank you so much, Dr. and Mrs. Patterson. We appreciate the, always the Advent season, and it's no different this week and this month. We think about, Lord, what would you have to say to us through the Advent season? And my prayer has been, Father, would you shine the spotlight on your Son? That's what we really want, right? Because we know that that is the true meaning of Christmas is that the God of eternity came to be born as a man in order to save us from our sins. F.F. Bruce said, if there is among the distinctives or the distinctive articles of our Christian faith, one article that is basic to all the others is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man for our salvation. And we would have to say that the heart of the distinctiveness of Christianity is the fact that the eternal Son of God became man for us and our salvation. We would not be here today were it not for that. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven, became a man in order to save us from our sins. Now, there have been attacks upon his deity. What does that mean? That Jesus was God, fully God. There have been attacks on his deity since the very night of his birth. We know that. We see it uh, even alluded to in the Bible. However, attacks upon the humanity of Jesus are also just as numerous. There have been both. The basic heretical teaching that has always circulated regarding the humanity of Jesus suggests that Jesus Christ only appeared to be a man. He had the appearance of a man, but did not have the reality of a human nature. Others taught that he was a deified human being. In other words, he was just a normal human being until after his baptism or after perhaps his resurrection, and then he became divine. Others said he was just humanified deity. So you have deified human being, then you have a humanified deity. What's that mean? He simply used humanity like a jumpsuit. He just was kind of in a human body as a shell. He had a real human body, but that was the extent of it. Still others claim that he was just an ordinary man, like you and me, and that he had a sinful nature just like us, just like everybody else on planet earth. I would say to you that all of those are plainly wrong. The fact of the matter is, eternal God added humanity, which singularly is the greatest miracle of all time. That God would become a man. That he would add, now notice Notice, this is very important, that eternal God would add humanity. What does the Bible call this? The enfleshment of God would be called the incarnation, not reincarnation. That's bogus. That's not Bible. But the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ became incarnate. God incarnate. God became a man. So what I want to do today in starting our Advent teaching is to focus upon the Incarnation. We're going to do two things. We're going to look at four 
text of Scripture that address directly or indirectly. Well, all of these will directly address the incarnation. But there are many, many, many uh, scriptures in the Bible that address the incarnation directly or indirectly. Today's will be directly dealing with it. We're going to look at those four passages. And then we're going to ask the question, why the incarnation? Does that sound good for everybody? Are you ready? Let's shine the spotlight on the sun because that's what the Word is going to do. So our first text is John 1.1. And I'm adding into it John 1.14, which is vitally important. John 1.1. Surely you can find the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, let's pause for a moment. There is no question, this is indisputable, that John is saying, affirming that the divine Word is, or Logos, is God. Do y'all not see that? In the beginning, the Word was with God and was God. Whatever this Word is, He is God. We see that clearly from this text. There is no doubt that this is describing God in His full essence. Ray Pritchard describes it like this. Suppose I say to you, I'm thinking of a Word, and what is that Word? And you would reply, man, I have no idea unless you tell me what the word is. And I say to you, well, just guess. Just guess what that word is. And you may say this time of year, reindeer. Or for me, bullets. Or in, in particular, deer, right? Or you may say, well, football or whatever. And I say, no, 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 no. Eventually you give up and I tell you that I'm thinking of the word Bacteria. And when you ask why, I say, well, there's just no reason. That's just the word I'm thinking of. Now, folks, it takes you a long, long time to think about the word bacteria. And maybe in a million years, you would never guess it. You see, if I'm thinking of a word, I've got to tell you what it is, or you're never going to know what it is. Better yet, I have to say what the word is, and I need to show you what that word is so that you'll understand what I'm trying to communicate to you. Something like that is what John means when he says the Word became flesh or the Word was with God in the beginning or was God. And when you start thinking about Jesus is the definition of that Word, then you start to think about what God would go to to love you and love me. He's communicating something to us. And that communication is the eternal Son of God who had no beginning. That's the divine logos rationale of God. It's the full essence of who God is. Note verse 14. Y'all with me? And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, listen to the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you know well that your pastor thinks that grammar is important, right? And it's vitally important here 
In verse 1 it says, and the Word was God. Y'all tracking? The Bible says in verse 14, it says the Word became flesh. The Word was, the Word became. That is so vitally important for all of us to see that clearly from the Bible today. Those two verbs, was and became, encapsulate the mystery of the fact that God, the Godhead, became man. It says the Word was God and the Word became flesh. And when John uses that terminology of flesh, he's talking about the totality of all of humanity. He could have said that the Word became man or that the Word became human. But he chose the word flesh so that in that construction you will grasp the totality of what it means for the God of eternity to become human flesh. Mm. Amazing. No way possible that's not the greatest miracle that has ever been. The fact that God would add humanity. Second text is found in Hebrews. We're moving right along. Hebrews chapter 2. If you'll just flip over there, you've got to race toward the back. You've got to turn right on this one and go toward Hebrews. Y'all found John okay, but I'm hearing you struggling on Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. Now, understand the word share means partaker. And then literally the word partook is a derivative of the same word, but they're not identical. Verbally, they're different. So, here's the deal. You naturally are universally partaking of humanity. That's always been your state. But when it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, that means he took on something that was not naturally his to begin with. Isn't that awesome? So he was God eternally for all existence and took on something that he didn't previously have, yet you were born naturally always being a partaker of human nature. The same things that though death that through death he might destroy. Notice this. The one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So in Hebrews 2, the writer tells us that Jesus partook of the same exact nature of us. He didn't have that nature before. But at a point in time, he took on that nature. What is that nature? Well, we're all humanity, flesh and blood. The eternal Son of God came and partook of the very same exact nature of us. So when Jesus of Nazareth walked around in the days in his flesh, he didn't walk around like some kind of superhuman being with his feet floating three feet above the air. He walked around just like us, but with one exception. Let your eyes fall down to chapter 4, verse 15. The Bible says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Y'all hear that? There was one exception about the divine Son of God. He was fully man. Didn't walk around with his feet three feet above the air. A ground. Here is the Son of God with one exception. He was totally without sin. So the biblical writers want to communicate to us that the eternal Son of God actually became something. He didn't just put on something like someone puts on a coat or something like that. He literally became flesh and blood. He took on a nature exactly like ours, except he knew no sin. Third text of Scripture, you've got to backtrack a little bit, is found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And some of you are going, yep, that's right. Romans chapter 8. I love the very first words. There is therefore, no, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a blessing? But verse 3 is where I want you to think about the incarnation. Listen to verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So here the Apostle Paul tells us that God sent His own Son, and notice the expression, in the likeness of human flesh, or sinful, sinful flesh. Notice what Paul avoids saying. He is careful not to say that He took on sinful flesh. He did not become a fallen human being. He took on a nature identical to ours with one exception. He was unfallen. Everybody else born out of Adam are universally fallen. That's not true for the Son of God. He identified with us so closely as possible, yet without sin. He was holy. He was undefiled. And the word likeness guards that truth by the Apostle Paul. And the fourth text of Scripture is found in 1 John chapter 4. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So you're just close to the end of the Bible. Flip over there. 1st John chapter 4 verse 1. In John's day, there was a heresy going on. And it was in the early stages of that heresy. Incipient means early stages. So it was really an incipient form of Gnosticism. And what do y'all know about Gnosticism? They would say that the flesh and the spirit are incompatible. Flesh is sinful. Spirit is holy. Well, John says, not so. Not so. And what he does to prove that is to share that if you deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then you are actually of the spirit of the Antichrist. Wow. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the spirit... By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. What a text. Again, that fundamental principle that flesh is evil, spirit is good. John is safeguarding the teaching of the Incarnation by saying to us that the Son of God came in the flesh. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That is, if you're not willing to confess the Incarnation of Jesus Christ, then you are of the Spirit of the Antichrist. Now we all 
readily will jump on people if they say Jesus is not God. What do you mean he's not God? He's deity. But what about people who say, well, he didn't really come in the flesh? John doesn't beat around the bush. He says to us forthrightly that if you deny that the Son of God came in the flesh, then you are the spirit of the Antichrist. And is that not what goes on in our world today? That spirit of the Antichrist in denying that God became a man is all around us. You're just as much an enemy of the gospel for rejecting his humanity as you are for rejecting his deity. So what do we learn? Well, the fact is, in these four passages, we must all admit clearly that the Bible establishes in its teaching that the incarnation means this. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man taking upon himself complete human nature without sin and without ceasing to be God. And when he adds humanity, he does not lose one iota of his eternal deity. We might say that it's really subtraction by addition. Philippians chapter 2 will say this, that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with the Father, but made himself of no reputation. In other words, he didn't consider his total equality with the Father something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation coming in the form of a servant. So folks, it's not losing deity. It is adding you and me. It is adding humanity. That's really the emptying. When it says he emptied himself, that word kenosis means that Jesus Christ added something to himself that humiliated him. And it was, it was you. And it was me. It was our flesh. So he came in that manner. So the incarnation teaches us that Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct natures, divine and human. He is eternally God who became man. Jesus did not have his beginning in Bethlehem. He's not some Johnny come lately. He had his beginning for all eternity. Can you think about the day when the Son of God got off his throne and condescended down to this earth? There's actually a passage about it in Hebrews 10. In the volume of the book, it is written in, of me, I have come to do your will, O God. How many babies can intelligently talk about their birth before they come on the scene? And here's the Son of God talking about coming down to the earth. You're seeing in Hebrews 10, Christ coming from His own viewpoint. A body you have prepared for me. Oh, that's amazing, is it not? And Jesus is talking intelligently about His entrance into the world. Since He has become a man, He is forever the God-man. It is the teaching of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is forever the God-man. The question, again, Charles Wesley exalts this truth in Hark the Herald Angel Sings. I don't know if you have a Baptist hymnal, but you ought to have a Baptist hymnal when you do your devotions. Right? You ought to read. Listen to this. Christ the highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity. Oh, it's all in the hymn book, is it not? It is. You ought to read the hymn book. I wouldn't have to do half as much counseling if you guys would read the Bible and read your hymn book. <laughs> if you would do that, I promise you the Lord would take care of most of your problems. I'm serious. Okay, we asked a question. Four reasons the word needed to become flesh. 
So we've settled it from the Bible of the fact that He's the eternal God who became man. Why? Number one, the Word became flesh so that Christ could fulfill all the covenant promises. And that leans on what Dr. Patterson read and promises coming through prophetic prophecy candle. We see that he promised from the beginning. What was the central promise given to us by God? I will be your God and you shall be my people. So from day one, even in the Garden of Eden, God was looking for a place to dwell. God was looking for a place to live. He seeks to dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. But because of their sin and rebellion, he becomes an unwelcomed guest. God raises up one man out of a rank pagan culture. Why did he get Abraham? There's a better question to that. Why did he save you? Why did he choose Abraham? Was there something in Abraham that, that God would say, Whoo, you're a pretty favorable guy. This guy was worshiping the moon god in Mesopotamia. And God Almighty just picks Abraham up, wants to dwell with Abraham, wants to dwell with Abraham's people, and establishes that promise of covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of you. He promises by covenant that he will come and save his people and that he would dwell with them forever. The covenant promise begins to take shape all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse, y'all know this? Verse 15. It's called the Proto-Euangelion, which that just means proto-evangelism. Look at this, chapter 3, verse 15. Y'all remember this? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is the first time we hear something about the seed of woman. And listen to this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Son of God shall crush the head of the enemy. Hmm. He did that on the cross, right? But there's this little tidbit of information that God is going to use the seed of woman, which ultimately becomes, yes, the eternal Son of God, to accomplish salvation. That begins in Genesis 3.15. He talks about accomplishing it, that purpose, the covenant, through the seed of woman. Then he moves to the seed of Abraham. And then he moves to the seed of David. And then on and on, this great covenant is unfolding through the Bible, historically and textually, in Holy Scripture. I am your God, and you shall be my people. The anticipation heightens all the way through the Holy Word of God. And the central element of that mystery is the one who comes as the seed of the woman in succession of Abraham, David, and Judah. There's no doubt throughout the Bible that this was going to be a human being. Yet, it is also woven throughout all the Scriptures that the one who comes will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Are y'all getting this? The Lord Jesus Christ. He would later say, Isaiah would say, For unto us a child is... That's his humanity. Unto us a... That's his deity. He was a son given before he was a child born. He's a son of God for all eternity. And we know, again, that Micah 5.2 says that he would be born in Bethlehem. You see, there are no accidents with God. And was he born in Bethlehem? 
You better believe it. God had to move the entire Roman Empire to move to a census in order for Mary and Joseph to pick up to go to Bethlehem. If God can move the entire Roman Empire for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, He can take care of you. That's how sovereign our God is. So all those covenant promises could come to pass. This was the completion of everything God had promised to His people for all ages. Let me show you the reality of that. 2 Corinthians 1.20, this listen. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Isn't that good? All the promises from our God find their fulfillment and their answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first, the Word became flesh so that Christ could fulfill all the covenant promises. Number two, the Word became flesh so that He could be the perfect mediator between God and man. He's the mediator between God and man. Do you remember what Eli says to his sons? He says, if one man sins against another man, they can find one to mediate between them. But if a man sins against God, who shall intercede? If we sin against each other, we are somewhat, what we call that, Kevin, peers equal, maybe? That, that we could... Uh, Get, get someone to, to stand. We can be a peer to stand between... You can get a peer, perhaps, to stand between you and another man. What are you going to do about you and your relationship to God? In Job chapter 9, this is the, the dilemma that Job has. Just listen. Don't try to turn. Listen to this. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? He said this, if one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. I mean, if we're going to go to trial with God, how can we do that? Is there someone that can mediate? Now listen to verse 32 of the same chapter, Job 9, 32. For God is not a man as I am that I might answer him in court, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Well, I've got news for you. Job also knew that there was a daysman. There is someone, folks, who can put his hand on God because he is God. And he can put his hand on you and he can mediate. And his name is the one mediator that God has given. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator, Paul would say, between God and man. Folks, there are no multiple roads to heaven. You have to have a mediator to go to heaven. And that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, Paul will add, there's only one mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus Christ. You do understand that's the fallacy up front of the priesthood. The priesthood lasted in the Old Covenant for years and years and years and years. But what did every priest have to do? He had to make atonement for his own sin before he went in. Man, that was, failed. That was an ultimate fail from the beginning. Right? Can you imagine old Joe over here that's going to go in and be your high priest and you hear him over here in his tent slapping his wife around and kicking his cat and dog and all of a sudden the next day he's going in before God for you. I know that guy who lives in that tent. Right? He always had to make atonement for his own sin. But the Son of God made no atonement for his own sin. He was sinless. He went in and made atonement for your sin and my sin so that we could have eternal life. He could lay his hand on the just God 
And he can also lay his hand on the fallen sinner and he can mediate. Paul would say there is only one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ the righteous. There is only one safe mediator between you and God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three. The word became flesh so that Christ could become the last Adam and the perfect representative of his people. Let me show you this from the Bible. Romans chapter 5. If you can't turn there fast enough, just listen. Chapter 5. Beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Listen to this. Who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul is making a contrast between Adam and who's the one to come. Jesus Christ. So Adam came as a representative of the one who was coming later who was the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Listen to how Paul explains it in the resurrection chapter. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Hallelujah. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So the Word became flesh so that Christ could become the last Adam, perfect representative of His people. When He came, ladies and gentlemen, He came as the perfect man. Luther says this in his song, The Man of God's Own Choosing. He came in the original design that God gave Adam as ruler over the earth. But we know what happened with Adam. Correct? He is the perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect Adam. If you want to read about Him, read Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2, and Ephesians 1. They all make uh, implicit understandings of the fact that Jesus came as the perfect Adam. And Christ comes into the world as the perfect man, and He fulfills all that it means to be a perfect man. You do know when God raises you incorruptible, you're going to be just like that. Not a little Jesus or a little God. You're not going to ever be that. But you are going to be made perfect man and woman without sin when you're in glory. The last Adam, Paul's description of Christ, is placed in a wilderness and he obeys. But what about Adam in the garden? He was placed in Edenic bliss and he failed miserably. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he never sinned. The first Adam fell before the serpent's temptation. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, will crush the head of the serpent under his feet. The first Adam disobeyed in the garden. The last Adam obeyed the will of God in the garden of Gethsemane and went to the cross to procure our deliverance. The first Adam was cut off from the tree of life. The last Adam died on a tree, making it the tree of life for all who believe. Nobody said amen. You're dead in a hammer. You ought to think about that, folks. Our Savior did battle with the enemy, fulfilling the Adamic mandate, and overcame the one who usurped Adam. He defeats the enemy, secures for us through his obedience a righteousness that is apart from the law. Glory to God. One more. The Word became flesh so that the immortal could die. The Word became flesh so that the immortal could die in our place as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You know, the Bible makes it clear that there's a penalty for sins. 
And it culminates in both physical and spiritual death. What did the Lord tell Adam? In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So we all see that death sentence. We all live under it. Suffering and death. This was a penalty from a just God and holy God. The Son of God, eternal God, becomes a man so that immortal can die in our place in a perfect sacrifice for the penalty of our sin. That's why he did it. The incarnate Son of God suffered and died in our place for our salvation. Paul says, now no one is likely to die for a good person. You ever read this in Romans 5, 6? Though someone might be willing to die for a person, for a person who is especially good, but God showed His great love for us by sending His Son to die for us while we were still sinners. Have you ever thought about the value of the death of Christ? Now, it's one thing to think about a martyr who might want to try to die in your stead. But what about the perfect Son of God who died in your stead? Have you ever thought, just sat quietly and thought about the infinite value of the death of the Son of God for you? Amazing. B.B. Warfield wrote, Because he is a man, he is able to pour out his blood. And because he is God, his blood is of infinite value to save us from our sins. You understand, folks, if the Son of God did not go to Calvary, you would not be forgiven. It's the infinite value of who died that procures your salvation. No one else could have died on that cross to save us. Only Jesus is of infinite value. The only thing that could forgive your sins and pardon you from hell that you deserved, the punishment you deserved, B.B. Warfield said, not some kind of martyr, who could come to deliver you from your sentence. It had to be a most valuable death to pay that penalty. This debt could only be paid through the God-man. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You know, today He is a willing and able Savior to save all those who are willing to come to Him. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through Him. I think Jesus has been set forth for you today in clear understanding of the gospel that he's the only mediator between you and God. Everything you need to know to have eternal life you've heard this morning. Everything. So turn from your sin. Embrace the Son of God who became flesh. Philip Brooks wrote another awesome uh, Christmas song. And in uh, my hymn book, I just have to flip back one page, and it's called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. For Christ, listen to this, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. You know, the reality is Jesus could have been born over and over again in Bethlehem a million times. But if he's not born in you, you're not saved. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us Abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. The Bible says repent and believe. That's what you have to do to trust Christ. Repentance is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than jail sorrow. Ah, we might say it like Alistair Beggs would say it. Suppose there's a woman in her kitchen. No, she's out in the den. Or even maybe upstairs. And her son is in the kitchen. And he's got his hand stuck in the candy jar. The cookie jar. She wants to know what time it is, so she says, Son, what's the big hand on? 
And of course, he's like, hand, cookie jar. And if she walks in a few minutes, and of course, he's got, got chocolate all over his hands, he's guilty. He's been caught. Mom, I'm, I'm so sorry. So sorry. I, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. Right? Now, what's the indicator of this, if, if this is true repentance or not? What happens when she goes back upstairs? What happens? See, folks, real salvation and repentance toward God is an entire change of your entire makeup. It's a putting off the old. It's a putting on of the new. Your moral compass changes. Your understanding of right and wrong. Your obedience factor to Jesus. That's what true repentance is. It's highly likely that many of you in this church got caught with jail sorrow. But you've never really repented to God because your hand's still in the cookie jar. Father, help us. Lord, true repentance. God, would you be pleased to save a soul this morning? You are, Lord Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. God, help us. Only you can turn on the light. When Peter makes that confession that you're the Son of God, you say to him, Peter, flesh and blood can't reveal that to you, only the Father who sent me. God, we're dependent on you to tell us who Jesus is. We're dependent on you to, to shed light on this one mediator between God and man. Thank you for the incarnation. The miracle of all miracles is that God would step out of eternity and be born in Bethlehem. You're the only man in history that was born with the specific purpose of dying for our sins. Oh, Lord, thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.